in case you haven't noticed, um, in the notes now, there's some questions for uh, reflection or discussion. Uh, maybe those will help you as you uh, sit around the dinner table, kind of process the sermon together as a family, think things through. Um, I guess my family ought to do that too, huh? We haven't done that yet. There's also some for kids. Uh, the Children's Bulletin also has questions for kids, their version of these things. So, um, letting you know about that. Um, we may also expand the Children's Bulletin so that it has all of the songs in it as well. So that's one of the things we're thinking about. So, anyway. Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Let's hear the word of our God. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved... Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, I do thank you for these people, that they know Christ, and yet we can all, all will know him better. Reveal the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ to us this morning. We need to be filled with the knowledge of your will. We need wisdom and understanding from the Spirit as we look at this passage. Use it to teach us to walk in a manner worthy of you, that pleases you and bears fruit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your beloved Son and the Savior of sinners. Amen. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a little comic strip that's put out by Radio Free Babylon, Coffee with Jesus. Maybe you're not familiar with it. Uh, one of my old friends in Florida decided to send me a copy because they saw what I was preaching on this week. And it kind of went like this. Guy has his cup of coffee. He's talking with Jesus. And he says to Jesus, I've been trying to work on my humility, Jesus. I'm getting a lot better. <laughs> Jesus waits. Rats! He says, I'm actually proud of that. <laughs> to which Jesus replies, humbling, isn't it? <laughs> There is the nature of humility. It's like a greased pig. It's so hard, it seems, to get, to keep, to have a hold on it. It's sort of an elusive thing. And that's what we're talking about this morning. That's what Paul, I think, wants us to chime in on, home in on, humility. The big idea, as I pondered this passage, was that Christ creates and keeps community through humility. Now, obviously, I have to go a little bit beyond this passage for us to see that. And one of the places we're going to visit is Philippians chapter 2, but we'll get there eventually. Let's begin with the idea of what humility is. And humility, I think, recognizes our real relationship to God and others. Not the fanciful, made-up relationship we have with them, the one that's based on illusions, but rather the one that's based on facts of who we are and who they are. 
Paul's uh, next virtues in this virtue list that correspond, you know, the opposite of the, the, the vice list that we've been looking at previously are rather shocking. These ones right here, because they were so countercultural. They were extremely countercultural. This was not something that Greeks embraced. These were things that the Greeks rejected, tried to avoid at all possible costs. Humility? That's for other people, not for us. And so Paul is embracing a value system that is upside down from the eyes of of the average person in Hellenistic culture. The first word that we see there is translated humility, and that's pretty simple. It means to be humble-minded. It also has that idea of having a low status, a low amount of influence, someone who doesn't matter a whole lot. That's part of what the Greeks didn't want. They didn't want to be a person who didn't ultimately matter a whole lot. They wanted status. They wanted influence. And Paul is kind of saying, be the kind of person that doesn't have to have status and influence. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word in contexts that imply humiliation. Someone who is oppressed. Someone who is downcast. The, the Hebrew word that it's translated often means someone who eats dirt. So that low. Yeah, your face is in the ground because you have been defeated. That's really kind of the idea that goes on with this. Doesn't sound very enticing, does it? Doesn't sound like, sign me up for this. But let's continue. The ESV translates the next word, meekness. But just about every other translation tends to use gentleness. And at first, uh, that might, they might seem to be conveying different ideas, but when you, you look at the Greek term that is behind this, you see that in, in addition to this idea of gentleness or strength under control, you also see this idea of humility and relationships. Someone who is not forceful, someone who is not demanding. In other words, they're not throwing their weight around all the time. They're not trying to get their way in every kind of exchange with other human beings. They're not the ones who, when the police pull them over, will go, don't you know who I am? All about their status and their influence, that kind of thing, you know. But more of a a quiet determination to win people over gently, slowly. This as well is countercultural. Today, not just in the time of Paul, but today, because we hear all sorts of things. You've got to be self-assertive. You've got to look out for numero uno. You know, uh, this idea that we have to demand our rights, that somehow we have to question all authority, as all the bumper stickers say. Meekness is very countercultural to all that. Because while it may suspect that authority, because the people in authority are sinners, it's not always... I don't know, acting like Woodward and whatever his name was. (laughs) I can't remember his name all of a sudden because I don't have it in my notes. But not always suspicious, not always questioning authority. 
but a calmness, a gentleness with respect to other people that they're in relationship with. And what goes on is that we live in this tension, I don't know, maybe you don't, but most of us do, of our dignity and our depravity. Okay? We, we exist having dignity. We have dignity because, first of all, we have been made in God's image and likeness. And so because we are image bearers, we have dignity before God and before one another. Now, there's this value to us because we are meant to reflect God's glory. We are meant to reflect his character. There's dignity here. Okay? But because of Adam's disobedience, there's also depravity. And that means that I'm a sinner. And that means that you're a sinner. And what that means is, is that your dignity is compromised. Okay? Knowing our sin really ought to humble us. Recognizing how far we have fallen, so to speak. I mean, we... By virtue of our salvation, we have a new, this new status that Paul has already talked about here. He, we, you know, we are called, uh, we're holy, and we're loved, and yet we remember that's all of grace. So it's not a, a, a cause for boasting, it's a cause for rejoicing, but not a cause for boasting because we recognize because of our depravity, it's all grace. We don't deserve it. So not not only... well. I'll just remind you of this. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I've come across recently was uh, attributed to Samuel Rutherford, who was the great covenanter in uh, Scotland, um, one of the sort of uh, main leaders of the church. And apparently one Sunday, one of the ladies of the church was waxing poetic as about his powers in the pulpit, apparently. And he said to her, Woman... If you knew the blackness of this heart, you would grab your children and run as far away from me as you possibly could. Perhaps a bit of overstatement, but nonetheless, he was humbled by his own sin, such that the words of praise that came from her lips did not fill him with these imaginations of, I am the greatest pastor that has ever walked the face of the earth. He was humbled and remained humble precisely because he knew the condition of his heart and he knew the sin that was there. Just as Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am, not I was, I am the foremost, the chief, the biggest. Paul knew the depths of sin within his own heart that no one else could see and therefore he walked in humility. And so that is why Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. So don't think more of yourself, but think of yourself and keep in touch with reality as a sinner before a holy God. 
That's an important part of how we view ourselves. And we also view ourselves as equal footing with other sinners. On the one hand, there is the dignity. On the other hand, there is the depravity. But there's also with it the dependence. The fact that we are not self-sufficient. Okay, it's easy for us to look back there at little Bruce and go, oh, clearly he's not self-sufficient. Um, but all of us are not self-sufficient. We all have weaknesses. As we confessed earlier, we are made of dust. We are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon other people. And it is affliction that reveals this to us. Deuteronomy 8 the people in the wilderness, they've just come out of Egypt and they're, they're going to go to the promised land, but something has to happen to them first. Because they might start to think more highly of themselves than they ought. And so God says He brought them to the wilderness to humble them. He fed them manna to humble them. He did all of these things. That's one of the, 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 the drum beats of the rest of all of Deuteronomy 8. He did this to humble them, to bring them low, to help them to recognize their absolute, complete dependence upon God so that they would learn to obey His commandments and live long in the land. Affliction is intended to humble us. Not only the people in the wilderness, but I think of David. Before he was king, David anointed to be king, but there was someone named Saul upon the throne. And yet he became a hero in the land because he was the only one willing to go up against the giant Goliath. And so if you have this, this idea of a young man who now is the most famous man in all of Israel, it would seem normal. Let's just elevate him to the king. Is that, is that what God's going to do? Is this the step that he's going to take next from great hero to great king? No, he goes into the wilderness. He's running for his life for years from Saul. Why? To humble him. So that when he becomes king, he becomes a good king, not a full of self king. God does this then, and He does it now. And so what happens for us is we, we kind of struggle with, with all of this dignity and depravity thing. If we focus too much on our dignity, then we are tempted to think too highly of ourselves. We tend to neglect the reality, the blind spots of our sin, and we begin to be puffed up in our own goodness. On the other hand, we can focus too much on our depravity and begin to neglect our dignity, and then we start to fall into the worm theology. I'm worthless. I'm just, not just am I the worst sinner, but I, God, God can't love me. There's just no way it's possible. And so we fall not into pride, but into despair. We begin to have no hope, because we have forgotten that not only are we depraved, but we also have dignity as an image bearer in God. And so it's very difficult for us to, to live in that tension and to have our hands on both of these things so that we think our, of ourselves rightly, not too highly, not too lowly. Humility is not thinking that you're just a despicable, lousy excuse for a human being. That's not humility. Humility also embraces the dignity to recognize that God has placed value in me because of his goodness. 
because of His grace. Not because I've got it all together. Okay? And so, you know, often we, we wrestle. There are moments when we're filled with pride, and there's moments when we're filled with this false, unbiblical humility, and hopefully there are also moments when we have hum- real biblical humility, when we have that elusive thing that we've been looking for, true humility. We're made for that. Charles Spurgeon noted that I believe every Christian man has a choice between being humble and being humbled. For when we forget to be humble, to humble ourselves in the sight of God, what he often does is humble us, teach us through hardship, through the exposure of our sin to ourselves. Sometimes when we're made progress in sanctification, we can deceive ourselves in thinking we're farther than we really have gone, and you know, we begin to get a little puffed up. Hey, you know, I've, I've conquered that sin. Well, what happens? God shows us. He removes a smidge of grace, perhaps, so that we stumble and go, boy, I still need his help. Keeps us humble. And so humility recognizes our great need for God and that we are no better than other human beings. Importantly, very importantly, Jesus exemplified humility in his saving work. Now is when we go to Philippians 2. Our depravity and our dependence mean that we need a Savior to save us from our despair. And Jesus is the one who is greater than us, the one who was fully God as well as fully man, as we've looked at in Colossians already. In other words, he was both supreme and he's sufficient to save us and to keep us. And yet, in his saving work, Jesus displays the very humility and the very gentleness that we need. As we saw when we, when we confessed from Philippians 2, and have this mindset in you, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We're able to have it precisely because he lived it. And now, because we're united to him, and because we have the fullness of him, we, are, we actually are capable of humility. The thing is, we, don't, we won't, probably won't realize it when we have it. That's good. That's very good. Okay? Jesus said about himself in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, upon, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle, uh, Jesus had a great self-awareness. Gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 says, I, Paul, myself entreat you, not by the power and authority of Christ, but by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Very different than what the super apostles in Corinth were trying to espouse and how they were trying to control the people. Paul comes with gentleness, gentleness and meekness because Christ came with gentleness, meekness. Okay? So, How does it play out in Philippians chapter 2? Well, first we see that Jesus did not cling to his rights as the sovereign of the universe. It says he emptied himself. Okay, he did not cling to his glory, but he let it go. In other words, he didn't force his way. 
Jesus humbled himself, it says. How did he do this? Jesus was not born to a palace, but to a blue-collar, rural family, part of a despised race, the Jews. In a backwards region, he spent most of his uh, growing up years in Galilee, in Nazareth, of which Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Okay, he, he grew up in humble conditions, economically, socially, racially, geographically. He humbled himself in his incarnation. Think about this for a moment. If he were to meet you and to hang out with you as his friend, wouldn't he be bored? He knows far more than you could ever know. He could have the most scintillating philosophical and theological conversations that would make your head spin. To speak to you and me would be child's play intellectually for Jesus. I imagine that within 15 seconds he'd be bored talking with me. All right? Yeah, you don't want to hear about the Celtics. <laughs> you don't want to hear about how the Bruins won last night. No. Nah. But any of it, how he condescends in a good way and enjoys his people, even though we are, he is far superior to us. Think of how, I mean, he knew Nathaniel's heart, right? Think of how disgusted he would be thinking about our hearts. But he condescended to seek and save those who were lost, who were caught in sin. How he humbled himself. He took the form not just of a man, but of a slave or bondservant. Someone who has no rights. No one who has the lowest social status the person for which there is nothing really ultimately too low for you to do, that's who he was in his earthly ministry. Didn't ride around in a big pimped-up car. He was the guy walking on the side of the street with his buddies, hoping for a ride. He humbled himself. And Paul says not only that, but he was obedient even to the point of his death on the humiliating cross. I mean, you didn't end up on a cross by accident, ladies and gentlemen. That's the death sentence because you were considered to be one of the most despicable criminals in society. That's how he died. And it was meant to be an incredible humiliation. Not just because you were beaten and bloody and defenseless. Stripped naked for all to see. Who likes that? Only strange people like that. We all have, those are our nightmares, right? You're up in front of an audience and you're only in your underwear. Okay, um, That's not something we really live for. This is what Jesus did. The utter humiliation that he experienced because he loved a people and was going to save them. Without his humility, without his humiliation, we remain stuck in either pride or despair, both of which are inaccurate views of reality. 
I like Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. See, Jesus didn't make up that beatitude. He was just applying Psalm 37. The meek or the gentle, he is the first one. He, in a sense, purchases it it back from sin because of his meekness and gentleness. And he offers it freely so that we may delight ourselves in abundant peace. As a result of his, his humiliation and as well as his humbling himself, Paul says that therefore... Okay, therefore, that's the logical connector. As a result of this, God exalted him. He did not remain humble, but God exalted him. And this sets the pattern for us that Paul builds on in Romans chapter 8. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. We, we, we have fellowship in his glory only if we first have fellowship in his sufferings. It says in Romans 8. That's the pattern for us. We don't get, you know, we're converted and we get the straightforward to the glory. Boom, fast forward to the end. Everything is great. No more suffering. No more having to deal with your own guilt and remorse for your sin. No. Now we have the suffering. Now we have the, the, the growth in humility. And it's at the end that we shall be exalted in glorification. It's at the end. Not now. So Jesus, despite being all supreme and all sufficient, humbled himself and was humiliated for us and for our salvation to purchase a people for God. And so I I say that specifically, a people for God, to remember that this is about the, the community that he is forming, the church, the new holy nation that he is he is building. And so as a result, we are to put on humility to preserve Christian community. Let's get back, in a sense, to Colossians. Scripture in many places calls us to live in humility before God and with one another. I call humility the place of grace, precisely because of the three times that Scripture says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Proverbs, 1 Peter 5, James chapter 4. Kind of important, God says it three times. It's the place of grace. Because it's only the humble uh, that want grace and seek grace and therefore receive grace. Augustine, among other theologians, had called um, pride the mother of all sins. Because, you know, pride gives birth to so many sins. It's like the root of so many things that are sinful. In the same way, humility is the mother of so many virtues. William Farley calls it the fertilizer for virtue because everything grows in humility. You know, you, you can't have all these other virtues ultimately if you don't have this humility and this meekness because they all require humility. And so Paul says to them, put on. And among the things we are to put on are that humility, are that gentleness, And what that means, I I believe, ultimately, is that we respond with humility and with gentleness toward God and one another. It's not an abstract sort of thing, but it's in the going out of your day. As you interact with other people, you you begin to respond to them, not as the self-serving guy that, 
you know, wants his way and will scream at the clerk if he doesn't get it, that kind of thing. But with humility and gentleness. The one who doesn't keep yelling at God because he deserves better, but the one who embraces his circumstances out of humility. Let's paint a picture of this. Let's kind of look at how the different portraits or or, or aspects of this thing called humility that that Scripture paints for us. And first off, we have in 2 Samuel 22, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And so uh, first off, we see that that these are people who who are looking for and receive God's redemption in the midst of their troubles. You know, their earthly troubles, God comes and rescues them. So there's a looking for, for help from God is part of what it means to be humble. To recognize that you are not sufficient to solve your own problems. To think your way out of it. You know, you're not Sherlock Holmes. Okay, he seems to be able to think his way out of anything. Well, we're not. We need God. Not only that, but we see in Psalm 25, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And so humility is in part being, is willing to be led by God through his word. It is a teachable and obedient heart. It's not the guy who's always fighting with God about, you know, whether or not he ought to do this thing. But one who who receives his word and says, okay, I don't always understand it, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I'm going to live that way. For instance, in this case, that humility is a good thing. Your flesh will tell you it's a bad thing. You're going to get trampled on. You're going to get ignored. You're going to get dismissed. You're not going to get your rights. You've got to fight for your right to party, say the Beastie Boys, okay, for those of you who are... Grew up in the 80s like me. Okay? Whatever that right is, you gotta fight for it, man. That's what the flesh says. That's not what God says. And so part of, of being humble is being teachable in terms of how I ought to live, what I ought to do, the mindset I ought to have. There's another part of this that, that is, is here. Humility also considers the needs of other people from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not saying you can't ever think about your own interests, but it says also think about the interests of others. You're not the only person in the equation. It always amazes me when someone's flight gets del- they're delayed, you know, and, and they're like wanting to kill the person who represents the airline. They're screaming and they're cussing and they got the finger going and the face is all red. And you can hear them 400 feet away, you know, with all the noise. Golly, that person can't fix your problem. That person's not to blame for your problem. Why are you taking it out on them? Pride. Pride needs to find the fall guy. Doesn't care if it gets the right fall guy, it's gonna blame somebody. And it's gonna, it wants, you know, the person wants what they want now. They're not, they're better than the other 400 people on the plane. 
And they're better than that stupid clerk who won't do what they want them to do. Humility considers that other person as a real human being. And deals firmly, but gently. But also recognizes that this person has to help 400 other people who also want to be someplace else right now. doesn't mean that you cease to exist, but it means that you're not the only one and it's not all about you. I've seen those shirts. <laughs> it's all about me. I think you're the only person who thinks that. <laughs> because the fi- other five other guys here would probably say it's all about them too. So anyway. So that's another part of what it means to be humble. So you know, Tim Keller, I think, rightly says that, that um, humility is not thinking less of yourself but of but thinking of yourself less, and if I I think I miss did I is that in your notes? Yeah, scratch out pride and put humility. <laughs> Say God humbles me even as I type the sermon notes. It's supposed to be humility is not thinking of yourself less or thinking less of yourself, like oh I'm just so worthless. That's not humility. It's it's having less self awareness. It's thinking about yourself less. And thinking about others more. In addition, humility is also gentle in disagreement. Philippians 4. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I think those two things are connected. It's because you have an awareness of God's presence with you that then you're able to be gentle with other people. Because you realize that ultimately God's going to work it out. It's not up to you to force your way through whatever it is. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Not forcing your way. This is a picture of mutual submission. Our session isn't perfect, but one of the things that we've done really well in my three years here, we disagree well together. There, I have not had an experience in, with this session of someone pounding their fist on a table or forcing their way, demanding that they get their own way. We talk with each other even if we disagree, which is not very often, but with respect. If someone is probably being mean, it's probably me. Okay? We got that. I like that. Makes you want to go to a session meeting instead of going... We have to go again. Okay? I've been there. Didn't like it. Don't want a t shirt from it. Uh, humility is also f- from places like First uh, Peter chapter 5 and, and uh, as well as Hebrews 13. Another part of it is following leadership that's exercised properly. All right? In other words, you, you recognize that Jesus is at work through the leaders of the church or the organization that you happen to be in that you don't know at all, that there may be facts that are at work that you don't know about, and that this, it's hard for us to submit when we don't have all the facts. It's hard for us to trust. But humility is willing to say, you know what? I don't have to know it all. I'm not responsible for this decision. They are. And if they're wrong, God will deal with them. I may have to incur some consequences, because of their bad choices. But nonetheless, I am not in the place where, you know, where I can legitimately fight this. I am to submit to proper authority, exercise properly. They're not commanding me to sin, for instance. Therefore, 
Learn to submit. It's a function of humility. It is. Lastly, humility is also gentleness with other sinners. As it says in Galatians 6, gently restore. We're able to do this only if we realize the depths of our own sin. You know, if we, if we think we're superior to the other sinner, we're going to tend to be harsh instead of gentle with them. And so Paul reminds us to do this gently. I remember one time, oh, it wasn't sin. It was failure to do one's job properly. I was probably 18 or 19, working in retail. High status there, eh? <laughs> that was my, I was the manager's favorite, the, the department manager's favorite. So anyway, I'm, and it, it was just one of those bizarre things where I'm, I've, there was a guy who was older than me, had kids, was laid off, and, he's try, and he was trying to do the best he can to feed his kids, a position I would find myself in much later in life, oddly enough. And I don't know all of the reasons why in my existential angst, but he failed to do something, and instead of just gently showing him how to do it correctly, I went off on this dude. It was wrong. I was not dealing gently. I was dealing out of arrogance. I was dealing out of pride, out of selfishness, and who knows how many other sins. When we, when we come with another sinner who recognizes their sin, we have to come gently so that we can restore them. The goal is not to beat them into a confession, but restoration. And that often requires firmness, but gentleness. And so we were able to reflect Christ's character, him who was humble and humbled himself, precisely because we're able to draw on our union. And in the midst of those occasions when we need humility, as we interact with other people, we need to start to consciously think that, Father, help me to be humble. Help me to be gentle. Because right now I'm tempted to just blast this person. That's part of what it means. And we draw upon this union in order to protect and, and, and preserve the community in which we find ourselves. Because as we noticed, all those, virtu- uh, those vices that were listed earlier, they all undermine and decimate and destroy community. But all of these virtues which are rooted in humility, protect and preserve community. You're not mad at the humble guy, are you? You're mad at the arrogant guy. The humble guy doesn't cause dissension. The arrogant guy who's not teachable, he causes dissension. So the community that Christ formed by his humility and humiliation is also sustained by humility on our part. Pride spawns numerous sins that destroy community. Humility gives birth to many virtues that protect and nurture community. By the grace of God who humbled himself, we need to humble ourselves before God and before one another. Exaltation will come. But first there is the cross. Will you be willing to bear it? Let's pray. Father, there is much here that rubs us the wrong way. That's because of our pride. 
the remnants that are still there. Have mercy on us. Be gracious towards us and continue to to wean us from these fleshly devices, from this sin. Remind us of of the greatness of Christ's work for us, that we are not overcome with despair when we do look ourselves flush in the mirror and see us for ourselves as what we are. As we see our weakness, as we see our neediness, as we see our sinfulness, help us to also see Christ and his work for us, lest we despair. But Father, help us to not look and see something greater than what is. That we be filled with pride because of of what we may have accomplished, but instead recognize that it is by God's grace we have done such things. Continue to work to cultivate humble community here amongst us. Father, we need it. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.